We have two scripture readings this morning, and um, the first comes from Psalm 97, and the second is from Acts chapter 16, and Bobby, do you have, you, oh, you're looking at me like maybe you were the reader, <laughs> and she said, no, I'm definitely not. <laughs> uh, I may be the reader for Psalm 97 this morning. Okay, yeah, come on, Chip, that'd be good. Uh, you can give us a different, so you don't have to listen to me the whole time. Thank you. Psalm 97. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame, who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Thank you, Chip. <clears throat> and I, I want you to hear a couple things in that psalm that will connect. I want you to notice that <clears throat> God has adversaries who are mentioned in, at the beginning of the psalm. Um, another translation says foes, that God has foes. And then there's also um, a condemnation of those who would worship idols or false gods. But the scriptures are pretty clear that there are other lowercase g gods than the Most High God. In fact, that psalm he just read said, Worship the Most High God, all you gods. And this is referring to the angelic host, um, some of whom have obviously rebelled against God and have set themselves against him. These are the foes that the psalmist speaks of. Uh, and of course, the promise is that, that God will deliver his saints uh, from God's foes. And that is what we're talking about when we talk about Easter. Uh, Jesus who comes announcing the kingdom of God's reign. Jesus who comes and sets people free uh, from sin, death, and the devil. Sort of the classic description. So the demonic hosts. Um, so when we talk about Easter, we're just coming out of Easter. Uh, Thursday was Ascension, the day of the Ascension. We, Forty days after Easter, Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And next Sunday will be Pentecost when Jesus sends the promised spirit. And so I want all these themes to be kind of rolling around in your mind and heart as we think about this. God's foes being not people, but the demonic powers who set themselves against the Lord and are seeking to, to, uh, to pursue and destroy people. But God has promised to set them free, uh, which we see in Christ. And um, so we move now to Acts. And just for a little context on Acts chapter 16. Um, 
we're, we're looking at Paul and Silas, and Luke is with them. We know that because Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote the book of Acts. And there are parts of Acts where he uses um, first-person plural language, which means he was there. So when he says we or us, Luke is writing this, and he's present with Paul and Silas when this is happening. Um, and so for Paul, this happens after he's been persecuting the church, after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, after he has been uh, converted and now empowered and sent as a missionary around the Mediterranean world. And he's been trying to go a particular way uh, in chapter 15, uh, excuse me, in chapter 16 in an earlier place. He's been trying to go one direction, but God keeps closing the door. And instead, he has a dream calling him to go into Macedonia, which is like into, into Greece. And so Paul um, does a little island hopping across the Mediterranean on this journey, and it ends up in Philippi. So, you know, we read the book of Philippians. That's the city that is written to these people. And we hear a little bit of his experience with the people in Philippi in this section. And I made note as an aside earlier, poor Lydia, she's had to hear this twice. But because there's a, we have a Lydia, I wanted to highlight in, just in the paragraph above where we start, the Lydia in the scriptures encounters Paul. Uh, one of his first days there in, in Philippi. And uh, she shares the good news of Christ's resurrection with her. And she comes to believe in Jesus along with her whole household. And she was a seller of purple cloth, which means that she had some money and some means. And her home becomes a house church in Philippi. And in fact, in the early days of the church, women were probably the most significant drivers of the spread of Christianity in those days. We see it in the women who came to the tomb. And the first one Jesus encounters and reveals that he has been raised from the dead was a woman, was Mary. They're called the apostles to the apostles. So they go and share it with the men who were a little slow to get there, right? And then we see, as, as not only in that instance, but also as Christianity is beginning to spread, um, Women came to experience and to know the goodness of Christ and offered up uh, their homes, offered up their finances, shared the gospel in ways that are really incredible. And so that has just happened. And here Paul and Silas and Luke continue to the next thing. And it's sort of funny. So listen carefully, listen well. Uh, as we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain in fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, 
And the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. The Lord, made the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, uh, to begin, I'd, I'd like for you to notice a few things. Um, first, I want you to notice the context in which Paul is operating. He is announcing the good news of Christ's resurrection, the, the coming of the Spirit, which we'll celebrate next week at Pentecost. He is announcing um, uh, and calling people to repentance because the kingdom of God is here. Uh, the domain of God's kingship has been inaugurated in Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. This is the conquering of, of sin, death, and the devil. In fact, his ascension, which we think about on Thursday, last Thursday, uh, reminds us that Jesus is now enthroned. Who sits on thrones? The king, right? Enthroned in the heavens. He is king of all the cosmos, everything that is. And this is what Paul's announcing to people. He's experienced it in his own life, and now he's coming to share it with others. Uh, this kingdom is, is um, uh, often represented, and this, um, this conquering of Christ is represented in a few ways. And when I was in school this past week, two weeks ago, um, I participated in, in worship there on, on site at the Orthodox Church. And so their churches look very different from ours. And in the center, uh, when you come in, there are no pews. You stand up. And so when you come in, there's, there's usually a table at the front. And there's, an, there's typically an icon on it that relates to the church season in which you're, you're uh, living. And so for Easter, the, the 40 days of Easter, the icon that is there for people to come in and, and, um, and to remember is this icon of Jesus' descent to hell, his descent to Hades, the place of the dead. And what you see in this icon 
is Jesus having trampled the gates of hell, so they're folded and crushed under his feet. He's standing on them, right? And underneath the doors, you can see uh, a representation of the devil. Um, Jesus is taking Adam and Eve, and there are others there, all those who have died, by the wrists and drawing them up from death to life. And I'm, I've talked about this before because it's a great image, but um, their hands, they, they aren't grabbing Jesus. Their hands are sort of limp like this. Jesus has them by the wrist and is pulling them up because they have nothing to do with this. This is something only Christ does for us. Like he's the one who conquers death and gives us eternal life. And so you see there that Jesus has conquered sin, that which separates us from God. He goes even to Hades to pull them up. Um, uh, he's, he's conquered death because he's drawing them up into life. He's conquered the devil who is now crushed beneath his feet. Reminds us of Genesis when God makes a promise to Eve that uh, one of her sons, though the serpent will strike his heel, uh, he will crush the head of the serpent with his foot. You can see all those things coming together. This is what Paul is announcing, the victory of Christ over everything that separates us from God and has brought destruction and difficulty into our lives, sin, death, and the devil. Um, so we see him making his way into, into Philippi. And, of course, he encounters Lydia. But then he's going to the next place. He's going to pray. And <clears throat> this girl begins to follow him around. It's a servant girl. Another word for, you know, I don't know exactly. I would assume this is a slave because these two merchants are profiting from her work. The servant girl has what might be in the Gospels called an unclean spirit. She has a spirit of divination from whom she is now able to speak someone's fortune. She has some prophetic aspect to it. And she can identify things that maybe we can't see with our eyes, but the unseen world is able to, to, to perceive. And so she has this uh, unclean spirit. These two merchants, these owners uh, of her, are profiting from her fortune telling. And she sees Paul and Silas and Luke and whoever else was in the group and she begins to announce to everybody who will listen, these are servants of the Most High God. And they know the way to salvation. And she kept saying it over and over and over and over again. These are servants of the Most High God. They know the way to salvation. Paul would say, okay, thanks. And then he'd start trying to talk. And she'd, no, no, these are servants of the Most High God. They know the way to salvation. And on and on it goes. And after many days, it says, Paul had gotten to be annoyed. That's a great, that's a great word to, to describe an apostle, isn't it? You think of the apostles as these holy people, and it's probably amazing he lasted days, right? But he'd gotten to be pretty annoyed. What might you? Right? And so what does he do? I think this is really, this is really significant. Uh, because, listen, when you announce the kingdom of Christ, when you offer your life to participate in that kingdom, as Paul's doing, when you proclaim to others that Jesus is king, conflict happens. It's inevitable. 
But this passage shows us how a Christian engages in that conflict that inevitably occurs when Christ's lordship is announced. Paul turns, does he destroy her? No. What does he do? Was he? he yeah, he, he casts the spirit out of her. The unclean spirit that was inhabiting her. In one sense, he sets her free, doesn't he? Um, he does not attack her. He does not try to get the owners to take her away and to crush her or to throw her in prison or any of those kinds of things. No, he turns and he is clear that he is not opposed to this woman. He's opposed to the spirit that is uh, within her. So my question to you is, uh, I wonder if, if anyone in this room has ever, at any time in your entire life, had a conflict. You know, that's, that was the exact same reaction this morning. Everybody laughed. Yes, of course. You might be in one at the moment, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, Leslie brought me some water. And she was like, you're going to make me go up front in front of everybody and bring that to you? <laughs> so I'm sort of in a conflict. Maybe it's resolved. But, um, we'll see you later. Yeah, so maybe you're in a conflict right now. I don't know. But how do you engage in that faithfully as a Christian? Paul shows us that sometimes we might get annoyed with each other, with other human beings, with other people. We might, too, become annoyed. And when I hear that word, it's like, you can sort of laugh at being annoyed, right? But sometimes things go deeper. I mean, we've asked God to bless our country. Our country is pretty fractious at the moment. And people think they have other people enemies, that they have enemies and foes and adversaries who are, are human beings, right? Um, and, and people are set against each other. Uh, you can look, not just at our country, it's not a, a United States of America thing, it's a global thing. We can look at Ukraine and Russia and see um, Christians, in fact, who are at war with each other. I don't even know what to say about that. Um, yeah, it's a problem. People have conflict. Paul's beginning to show us here how we are called to deal with it. He recognizes that his opponent is not the person, not the person who's annoying him, not the person who's interrupting him, not the person who is causing him problems, not the person who's getting in the way of the thing God's called him to do. Look out for, for us, Lord, when we think that other people are the problem why we can't serve you, Right? That's when really bad things start to happen. But in this instance, he turns and he sees the servant girl and he casts the spirit out. So maybe when you're in conflict, remember that the person is not the problem. Maybe the situation has something to do with it, but that person is made in God's image. And Paul could see that even in the demon-possessed slave. And we're called to see that in each other. God's image in us. So the goal is to be set free from the things that bind us, right? Um, and sometimes, I know this could be a shock, but sometimes other people might actually be annoyed with you. Right? Or worse, and with really good reason. But they're not your opponent, and you aren't theirs. We're both being called to something higher, to see Human beings redeemed, restored, and loved by God, called into God's kingdom where he is the ruler 
and not us, to engage in the inevitable conflict in a different way, I'll tell you what not to do because it's the very next thing, right? What happens when Paul casts the spirit out? The two merchants can't get rich anymore using this girl. They weren't, they saw her as a servant at best, a slave at worst, and as profit for them. It's sort of like advertisers today, right? That's how they see us, yeah? Um, we're just money in other people's pockets, and we're sort of manipulated to the ends that companies want, right? And so we're called not to be like that. Uh, they see their source of funds disappear, and so what do they do? They take, they grab Paul and Silas. They lead them to the market. They bring them before the judge. They accuse them. You remember, they're in Philippi, not in Israel. So these are Jews. And they're proclaiming things that aren't in keeping with Roman citizenry. They have them stripped. They have them beaten with rods. They have them thrown in jail, in jail and then bound in chains. Some of the kids this morning that were in Sunday school know about this because they were doing the same story and uh, they had a jail and they had to go in and get bound up with paper chains, you know, and so they, they know this story better than us perhaps. And so what happens to the world when they get angry at the other person? They try to destroy the person. See how that works? The enemy they identify as the human being. And that's not the way of God's kingdom. Of course, um, Paul and Silas and perhaps Luke, as they sit in prison, show us something more about how to be trapped. How to find ourselves in circumstances we don't like how to find ourselves bound in and in prison, in chains, different ways, and still experience an inner freedom. What were they doing? It's midnight. They're bloodied, bruised, beaten. Apparently the wounds haven't been uh, um, uh, cleaned yet. They're just sitting there bloody with their feet in the stocks. And what are they doing? Praying. praying. Right? It's midnight. They're praying and they're singing hymns. Isn't that beautiful? They're in this place. There's no light, right? It's in the innermost prison. The deepest, darkest place in the whole jail is where they put them. And in their despair, not knowing what's coming next, knowing that they're far, far, far from home, they're in a foreign land with people they don't really know, they have no resources. Maybe this is it. Maybe they're going to die. This is what the world does to people, right? And they're singing hymns to God. They are experiencing a freedom internally that is not matched by their outward circumstances. And so I want you to know that the same is true for you. Ultimately, your outward circumstances, your external circumstances, aren't determinative of the freedom that you can know in Christ, of the life that you can live with Him, regardless of where you end up. That doesn't mean the external circumstances aren't real and, and many times unjust or wrong. It doesn't mean that. But it means that you know a victory that is in Christ that supersedes anything you might experience. They sang hymns. 
Be thou my vision. It wasn't written yet, right? But, I mean, this is what they're doing. They're looking to God. They're looking to Christ in the deepest, darkest place. In fact, Paul and Silas are doing what lots of people who found their stories collected and placed and written by the Holy Spirit and humanity into the Scriptures. Think of any of them? Who've ended up in a deep, dark place, in a pit, in prison, in entombed, and yet worshiping, experiencing freedom, and then deliverance. Anybody? David? David's story? In fact, when I was there, you know, he wandered in the wilderness, literally the lowest point on earth, the Dead Sea, right? It's where he was hiding out from Saul as he was persecuted. Who else? Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet. Who else? Jacob, mm-hmm, yeah. Daniel's on my list, right? Yeah, he li he's literally tossed in the lion's den. Yeah, down, covered up, spends the night. Spent the night doing what? Praying to the Lord and is delivered, even when he should have seen death. Because he was worshiping the Most High God and wouldn't worship the idols, just like our psalm was talking about. That's what, that's what Daniel was doing. And what happened to him? The world tried to crush him, right? But there was victory in the Lord that they knew nothing about. Um, yeah, I thought of Joseph. Joseph, whose brothers take him, his own family takes him and tosses him into the pit. They were going to murder him, but then they said, no, we'll just let him be sold into slavery. He goes into Egypt. In a, in a, in a sense, he's imprisoned for many years there, but eventually... As the Lord continues to meet him, as he continues to worship God, he's brought up to a place where God's purposes are greater and what they meant for evil, God worked out for good. Um, I thought of Jonah, right? Lib thought of Jonah too, I can tell. Jonah, who's swallowed up by the fish, taken to the very depths of the ocean. Um, the image is, is of Jonah being taken to Hades. Remember Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah, right? So Jonah is taken down, and the description is of Hades where the roots of the earth have been wound around his head. He is bound like Paul and Silas in chains. He's bound in death in his unrepentant um, uh, attempts to run from God, right? But what does he do? What's the turning point at the lowest part, at the imprisonment uh, that came along with that? Poor adventure. He prays, he repents, and, you know, there's a huge long chapter in Jonah that's just his prayer of repentance. And that's the turning point. When he prays, he experiences a freedom that he doesn't see yet in his external circumstances, but then is eventually discovered as he is brought back and, and, and placed on the sands of the sea. And then there's this guy named um, right, Jesus, right? Uh, who came and walked among us, who announced the kingdom of God, who announced this new rule, who cast out demons and showed uh, power over the unclean spirits, who healed, who announced the year of the Lord's favor, who announced good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, who was killed by the authorities because he was announcing things they didn't want to hear. He was, well, he was uh, arrested. He was falsely accused. He was stripped. He was beaten with rods. He was um, crucified. And then he went into a tomb, into a prison, and the doors rolled shut. 
But just like the icon showed us I was telling you about, that tomb couldn't hold him, the Lord of life. And so the resurrection is known. So all these guys who end up in despair, in, in prison, eventually discover in that unusual place, the place we wouldn't expect it, God's presence, God's deliverance, and freedom. That's what Paul and Silas experienced too. Uh, it's an earthquake, right? Earthquake in the middle of the night. What happens? Chains fall off. The doors are flung open. Everything is opened up. The way to freedom has been made. But then a greater miracle occurs, right? At least in the view of the jailer. Right? He gets up. He sees what has happened. The prisoners he thinks have escaped. The doors are standing open. It's dark. He can't tell. He takes his sword out to kill himself because in those days, if he let them free, if the prisoners escape, what does the world do with the enemies, with failures? The world crushes them, kills them, murders them. This was what was coming to him. This was sort of, in their day, like the easy way out because maybe he would have been tortured too, but it's at least maybe the honorable way out in their day and their time. But Paul cries out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. Don't do it. We are all here. Can you imagine the hardest point of your life, the hardest season of your life, the, the prison you ended up in, having suddenly in the middle of the night, in the middle of that distress, seeing every door flung wide and the chains fall from your hands and the way of freedom open before you and then not leave? Here's the way of the kingdom. Paul and Silas had died to themselves. It makes total sense if you're living for yourself to get out of here as fast as you can. Paul and Silas were living for the heavenly king. And they were listening to what God had for them. They saw the jailer, the one who had beaten them, perhaps, at least the one who had placed the chains on their wrists and the stocks on their feet, not as their enemy, but as one who needed to know the good news of Christ, the good news of the kingdom, the love that God has for them. And boy, did he discover it. He comes in. He, literally, the light enters and shines in the darkness. Remember? He called for the lights. They brought light, went into the innermost room. And there are those who belong to Christ. And he can't believe it. And he says, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in Jesus. You and your whole household. Look what happens when the gospel breaks in. Enemies are reconciled. And... And this one who has wronged Paul and Silas now begins to tend the very wounds he caused. There's reconciliation. There's love. There's celebration and feasting. They take him, they baptize him, they go home. They celebrate that he has come to know the Lord. This very story could be you. This could be you. This could be our church. It should be, actually. This is exactly what we're called to. Not to be at enmity with one another or the world, but to recognize that we serve God who's reconciled us and whose only enemy are the demons that would seek to tear us apart. 
And that when we find ourselves trapped, we can also experience an inner freedom that is real and true and powerful that literally changes things, even with those who are opposed to us. Right? We live in a moment in time where everybody's opposed to everyone and everything. This could be us. And, and we're called to this life, a reconciliation of love, of being willing to love with self-sacrificial love, agape love, which Jesus shows us most clearly is willingness to die and rise for us. I kind of want that. You know? That sort of thing lasts forever. These other things don't. So let's live into that. Let's heed that call. Let's move in that direction. Let's sit in chains if we have to. But also know the freedom of Jesus Christ, our Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.